All right. Welcome, everyone, to an empty corporate global headquarters. It is just me all by my lonesome here, squirreled away back in my own little cubicle because Evan is uh, on a little vacation today. He's out of the office. He's away from his keyboard. He is on a space cruise and not here. So it's just me today. Um, And what I'd like to do for this episode is give you my 2021 Fantasy Premier League Christmas list. And what I mean by that is uh, I want to give you a list of some of the players that I have my eye on that I'm interested in picking up. Um, Some of these are very sensible transfers. Some of these I may already have done earlier today. Um, And others of them are more wishful thinking that I really at this point can't factor into my current team, but that nevertheless I'd like to incorporate at some point soon, perhaps next time I get to play a wild card, which um, will be in a couple months probably. Um, And it's important. And I want to remind everyone to uh, get your Christmas lists in early this year. We know that shipping is going to be rough. The disruptions in the global infrastructure in trade routes, uh, you know, difficulty in finding labor, all of these different things are going to affect how quickly your favorite Premier League assets, assets arrive at your doorstep. So make sure to get those Christmas lists in early to your parents, your mother, your father, your grandparents, whichever of your relatives is most financially stable. Send those Christmas lists to them as soon as you can in order to get the nice package on Christmas Day to open up that shiny wrapping to untie that bow and see a nice Phil Foden under the tree waiting for you. Um, Okay, but before I do that, I just want to run down the league table. So as you'll know, we uh, just finished our game week yesterday. I'm recording this on a Monday night. And uh, the next game week starts tomorrow. This is the beginning of fixture congestion um, where we're having uh, multiple game weeks in a normal Justinian week. Um, And so time gets a little bit warped in that way. Um, There'll be a lot of games. The time between games in which you can make changes is greatly compressed. So make sure that you pay attention to when the next game week starts and get any changes that you want to make in before that happens. Um, And because of that, future episodes of the Corporate Global Fantasy Premier League podcast uh, may not be as timely as they otherwise are just because it's difficult to be timely in a world where there's really only 24 hours between the end of one game week and the beginning of the next. So just keep that in mind. Uh, Cut us some slack as we go forward. Um, So I'm going to run down the league table just to give you a sense of that as it stands here on Monday, uh, November the 29th at 6.26 p.m. Uh, So in first place, we have Wyatt Keener, uh, shove it. Um, He had uh, 49 points this game week uh, for a total of 835. It was a pretty modest game week all around, I would say. The, The league high for us was 73 points. That was Rob's. And the league low was um, between myself and Spicer, and we both had uh, 48 points. So not a lot between those two. 
Uh, and in fact, Rob was kind of an outlier. I would say the vast majority of us were, were in between 60 and 48. Um, okay. In second place, uh, we have Evans Bosch Habit, um, who scored 58 points for a total of 807. In third place, Eli's Tangi Take Me Home or Tangi uh, Take Me Home, uh, 59 points uh, for 766. In fourth place, moving up a space, um, Rob's Smeagol Golem had 73 points, as I mentioned, a good game week for 760 points. Down a spot from fourth place is Jake Hare's Mr. Fantasy Football, 52 points, 744. Um, in sixth place, that's me, Taylor Hare with Icest Inc. I had um, a 48-point game week and 729 points. <clears throat> Excuse me. In seventh place, uh, Evan Hare's SLC Hare's uh, 53 points for 200, or I'm sorry, 727. Uh, then William Spicer's The Bruce Matthews, 48 points, 708 points total. In ninth place, Tim Griffith's Proper Prospects, uh, 51 points for 684 total in 10th place Reed Zimmerman's Naptown FC 52 points for 671 and then in last place Jerry Groth Soccer 2 with 53 points for 659 so very little movement really only uh Jake and Rob um switching places in fourth and fifth place um other than that not a lot happened this game week from a moving and shaking standpoint and I wonder how much of that has to do with some of the heavy hitters um, like Mo Salah, not scoring very highly, and also um, the kind of weirdness with Spurs game being delayed, which was really unfortunate for me as someone who owns Harry Kane. Um, so in order to give you my uh, wish list, I want to just give you a little bit of familiarity with my team. So I'm just going to run that down, and then I'll talk about who I am hoping to bring in soon. So in Keeper, I have Sanchez and Foster. Foster is unfortunately... Um, out injured for at least a little bit. Uh, says here he's got a groin injury, which is unfortunate for me. I may have to switch him out. Uh, in the back, I have uh, James, Trent Alexander-Arnold, and Cancelo, and I also have Livermento as my first off the bench, but I played a three in the back last week. Uh, in the midfield, I have Rafinha, Mount, Salah, and Mbwemo, um, and I also have Brownhill on the bench. Um, and then up front, I have uh, Ivan Tony. Mikael Antonio and Harry Kane. Although, as you'll see, I've already made a change to that forward line already. Um, so that's who I'm working with, and I may reference some of those people as I talk about my own wish list. So I'll start uh, with the uh, my wish list for the defense. I'm not gonna. I haven't put anyone on my wish list in the keeper position, simply because I have made it a goal of this year to just not think very much about the keeper position, and um, I, so I'm just going to stick with, San with Sanchez as much as possible. And if I need to switch out someone for foster, another cheap, um, keeper who maybe costs four or thereabouts, um, if foster's out for a longer period of time than it seems like, then I'll do that. But other than that, I'm just going to keep with, um, Sanchez, keep it simple, keep it safe. Um, okay. So in defense, my current wish list looks thusly and this is conditioned by the fact that i am making defense i've kind of decided that i'm making defense my least exciting position i'm kind of going for as much utility as possible and 
by that, I mean, I'm going for the players that seem seemingly everyone has. I'm not trying to be um, out of the box or eccentric with my choices in defense. Um, I'm trying to maximize value and heed some uh, advice that I'm reading in different quarters about um, how to do that. And so far it's worked out for me really well. I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold is just an absolutely fantastic Premier League asset in the sense that almost every week he gives me an assist and a clean sheet, which is when you think about it, really, really something. Okay. Uh, But in defense, um, in addition to my main defenders, which are James, Alexander-Arnold, Cancelo, and Livermento, I'm looking at Rudiger. Again, kind of going with the stable backline idea, um, trying to play it safe and just maximize points where they're possible. I think Rudiger and Chelsea defense is good. Uh, I would be tempted to go for Alonso, but I'm not convinced that Alonso is going to be starting long-term. But that obviously depends on Chilwell's situation. So that's something. Uh, I really want to pick up Kyle Walker. So he's 5.5. I know someone in our league has him. It may be Rob. Um, And I watched um, a good bit of the City game this past week. And it just struck me that um, not that many people are uh, talking about Kyle Walker as a Premier League asset. But if you're willing to maybe sacrifice a few of the kinds of, you know, assists and attempts on goal that someone like Cancelo gives you from the right side, taking um, the left fullback from City might be nice. And he's fairly cheap at 5.5 and he's going to get you those clean sheets. So that's someone I'm looking out for. Um, Another fullback that I'm hoping to bring in is Tariq Lamptey. Um, I don't know that he would be starting. I may switch him out for Livramento. Um, I may bring him in as a first off the bench. Um, but, uh, this is kind of the beginning of me looking for value in the back. And these next three players are all about that. And Tariq Lamptey is, I watched again, a little bit of the Brighton game this past weekend. And, um, yeah, he just seems to be, have slotted right back into Graham Potter's plans for attacking. Um, and I like that about him. I like that um, he played over 60 minutes this past week, which is really great. I think he played in the 70s somewhere. Um, And I just like him as a player. I really enjoy watching him, so I'm hoping to bring him in. And then my last two people on my wish list are both um, Arsenal defenders. And this is the part of the show where I give my mea culpa to Evan for his genuinely astute prediction about Arsenal's defense this year. It took a little bit to come to fruition, but um, as much as I hate admitting that I was wrong for poking fun at him for talking about um, Arsenal's defending as a place to find value, I think he's been borne out in the last couple game weeks, both with his Ramsdale pick and then also with some defenders. And if you're looking for someone in that, you know, low four price range or mid four price range, um, you could do much worse than uh, 4.4 Ben White, or even I was watching some of the game this past week and a 4.6 Tomiyasu who plays fullback as opposed to center back, maybe somewhat place to go to. He's a little bit more expensive than White, but he seems nailed on as a starter and um, he is in that fullback position. So he's getting much farther at the field. Uh, so those are my, uh, the members of my wish list for defense. I think I'll probably bring in Lamptey 
to be first off my bench, to be my fifth defender. Um, that's probably the way I'll go. If I don't do that, I might bring in Kyle Walker and just go four main defenders. Um, but we'll see. Okay. Moving to my midfield again, I've got currently Rafinha, Mount, Salah, and Mbwemo. And this is very much a relic of a couple of weeks ago, this, this midfield. And there are definitely players I want to move out. I'm hoping to move Rafinha out. I'm just, uh, I'm kind of done waiting for Rafinha to click this year. Um, I know there's a school of thought that once Bamford and, um, uh, I don't even know who else they have. They have at least one other player injured. I'm led to believe, but uh, once they have more players that Rafinha will become more of a scoring threat, but I'm kind of tired of waiting for that to happen. And I see other people that I want to bring in instead of him. So I think I'm going to do that. I think I might stick with Mason Mount just a little bit longer. Um, He came on for about 15 minutes at the end of the Chelsea game this past weekend. And, um, I just think that Chelsea's best starting three always involves Mason Mount. That's just my read of their team. And I think that Tuchel also believes that. And so I think that he's going to continue to produce. And I think he's going to get starts now that um, he's back in. And I think he also works better with Lukaku than some of the other players. And so as Lukaku comes in, I think Mount will become more important to what um, Chelsea is doing. So, um, I think I'm going to keep Mount. Uh, but on my wish list are, um, Diego Jota. I mean, if you don't have Jota and he's not on your wish list, that seems a little bit foolish just because he scored two goals this past weekend. Um, and I would be interested to know whether even if Bobby Firmino were to come back this week, whether he would be, back in that, whether Firmino would be back in that starting position because Jada is just playing so well. And at 7.7, he's kind of ultimate value. So if I were to get rid of Mount, that's probably where I would go. Um, I have enough money now or almost enough money to upgrade Rafinha to Jata, which I may do next week, um, depending on how this game week goes. So we'll see. Um, so Jata is definitely on there. The one I really want to bring in is uh, Trossard from Brighton. Um, so he takes penalties for Brighton. He is their most potent attacking threat, I would say. Neil Mope is not playing very well, and Trossard is. Um, and he's listed as a midfielder as opposed to a forward, even though he seems to be playing more of a forward role to me as I'm watching the team. Um, I'd really like to bring him in. And um, he's only 6.5. So that would be my probably my go-to straight swap for Rafinha. Um, and the, for me, the midfield is all about kind of like subbing in and out like for likes as things happen, um, as players get hot. And I so I think Rafinha to Trossard is a um, sensible way of applying that principle. Whether or not I do it, I might, I've thought about taking a hit, but Rafinha has Crystal Palace this weekend, and that seems pretty tasty. Crystal Palace score a lot of goals, but they also give up a lot of goals. So I think I might keep Rafinha for this week and see where that goes. Um, a move I'm certainly going to do soon is um, uh, take out Mbwemo and bring in the next person on my wish list, which is uh, John McGinn from Aston Villa. Um, 
McGinn has been playing very well. He uh, seems to be pretty central to what Steven Gerrard is doing at Villa. Um, and I like watching him as a player. I think he's fun to watch. He's only 5.8, so approximately the same price as Mbwemo. And Mbwemo just hasn't turned out the way that he seemed like he was going to at the beginning of the season. And I think it's time for me to part ways with him. And so McGinn, I think, is the person I'm going to bring in there. And that's also partially just because I want to have an Aston Villa player. I think they are on a roll. I think that they have a lot going for them right now. Um, And yeah, that's something I want to be a part of. And I want to have a piece of that in my team, Um, even though their fixtures aren't great, obviously um, the next two game weeks, they have um, who they have. They have man city. Then they have um, Leicester and then they have Liverpool. So that's pretty bleak. But after that, they've got some good fixtures. So, and that's probably about when I would be bringing him in in anyway. So that's Norwich and um, Burnley subsequent to those games. So that's probably more around the time when I would be hoping to bring them in um, right around the week before Christmas. So uh, you can look out for me. At least at this point, these are all subject to change, but you can look out for me to bring in John McGinn at some point. And then um, the last people on my uh, midfield wish list is actually a nexus or a matrix of people. Um, and that is the Man City, Gunduan, Foden, Silva matrix. Um, and I say that it's a matrix simply because I don't know which one I want to bring in. Obviously, Gunduan has been playing really, really well. Um, and I'm really jealous of Evan bringing in Bernardo Silva because I think he is so much fun to watch. Excuse me. Um, but at the same time, I think that Gundogan and Silva's success both has largely been due to Foden's injuries as well as KDB's injuries and Ferran Torres' injuries, who Ferran Torres is supposed to come back um, perhaps in the next couple game weeks. So I'm a little bit reluctant to bring one of those guys in except for Foden because Foden is kind of a nailed on starter whenever he is healthy. Um, but there's a, there's a part of me that wants to bring Gundogan in for the very, very short term in order to um, take advantage of his starting position while it's there, because I don't think it's going to be there for very long. Although that requires a certain level of agility that I don't know that I possess at the moment. So we'll see. But that's my that's my midfield wish list. Jota, Trossard, McGinn, and then that Man City matrix. Uh, Man City midfield matrix. Uh, and then up top. Um, so until today, I had Ivan Tony, Mikhail Antonio, and Harry Kane. I actually have already brought in one person off of my wish list, which is a kind of left field pick. I, in the same way that I've decided that I'm going to make defense my most kind of um, boring for lack of a better term position and kind of go for the, for the nailed on people like James and Alexander Arnold and Cancelo. Um, I've decided I'm going to allow myself to um, be as eccentric as I want to be uh, at the forward position because who the heck knows what's going on at forward these days. So that, Impulse kind of led me to bring in Harry Kane, which was unfortunate for me this last week, but I'm willing to see that out another week. Um, if Kane still looks sluggish against Brentford on 
Tuesday, I, I think they play. Maybe Wednesday. I can't remember. Um, oh, they play Thursday. Wow. Um, if Kane is still pretty sluggish against Brentford on Thursday, um, I may bring Lukaku back in um, because this is right about the time. He got a couple of minutes, I think 10 minutes against, uh, maybe even less against, um, who did Chelsea play this past week? Man United, that's right. Um, real shame that Lukaku didn't get to play more of the Man United game considering his personal history with them. But anyway, uh, I may sub in Lukaku for Kane if he doesn't look good. So, um, but the person I have brought in, uh, I've taken out Ivan Tony, regardless of the fact that he scored this past weekend. I don't think he's that great of an asset. Um, and I brought in Joe Linton, surprisingly. Uh, I knew I wanted one of the Newcastle front three, St. Maximin, Callum Wilson, and Joe Linton. Joe Linton was the cheapest. I'm planning to just keep him on my bench um, and bring him in if necessary. Um, and I like the way that he's playing under Eddie Howe. Um, he scored, obviously, not this past week, but um, the game week before that. He doesn't take penalties. Callum Wilson, I believe, is still taking penalties for them. But Callum Wilson, as you all know, is very injury prone. And I think that if Callum Wilson get in, gets injured, Joe Linton will be responsible for those penalties. Although it's possible it's Matt Ritchie, but I hope it's Joe Linton. Um, anyway, he's a player that I really want to do well. I'd love to see a kind of redemption arc for him after a really kind of turgid past couple of years. So uh, I picked him up more as a kind of, you know, um, on a hope and a prayer than anything else. I'm not expecting great things from him and my team doesn't need him to do well, but it would be amazing if he did. Uh, the other person on my wish list at forward is Watford's Josh King. Um, a very, a man very much in form right now. Um, after having scored, uh, a goal over the past several game weeks. So he scored this past weekend. Um, he scored, the weekend before that. And um, I guess he didn't score that, but he scored, he scored more than I would have expected, you know, um, ex Everton striker, Josh King to score, which has been a pleasant surprise. And he's also on penalties because Ishmael Asar is injured. So um, something to keep in mind, he's only 5.6. I think if I was really thinking with my brain, Rather than my heart, I would have brought him in instead of Joe Linton, but I really wanted to make that Joe Linton pick. So um, that's why I did that. But I've been thinking about taking Mikel Antonio out for quite a while. And if I did, I could save a ton of cash by bringing in Josh King and then maybe making some of those wish list moves in the midfield that I wanted to do, perhaps upgrading to Jata or to um, Trossard from Embuemo or someone like that. Um, so Josh King is something to keep an eye on. I don't expect his form to continue for all that long, um, especially as they have some really tough fixtures. They've got Chelsea coming up, then they've got Man City. But then, um, you know, it evens out a little bit with uh, Brentford and Burnley and Crystal Palace, all very scorable games for Josh King. So he's also on my wish list. And uh, yeah, I would like to see him do well in the same way that I would like to see Joe Linton do well. So that is my wish list. I'll just run down one more time. In defense, I've got Rudiger, Kyle Walker, Tariq Lamptey, Ben White, and Tomiyasu. 
in the midfield, I've got Jota, Trossard, McGinn, and then the uh, Man City Matrix. And then at forward, I've got Lukaku, Joe Linton, and Josh King. Those are people I have my eye on. So uh, if you have questions about that, feel free to let me know in Discord. Um, but while I have you here, I do want to comment on, I think it would be remiss if we didn't comment on, something that I think has been really interesting in the developments around the kind of managerial changes that have happened over the past couple of weeks. Um, and I think it's time we talk about Steven Gerrard and particularly Steven Gerrard's overcoat. Um, because we've seen the overcoat be a kind of statement piece from different managers in the past. Pep has made different coats statement pieces for himself. We've seen a variant of that in the puffer overcoat that Nuno used to wear at Wolves. But I think I don't think anyone has as kind of seamlessly integrated the overcoat into their wardrobe as Steven Gerrard seems to have been able to do, um, both at Rangers and now at Aston Villa. And I just want to say I am very much buying into what Steven Gerrard is doing aesthetically. I think it's very much working for him. And I think a useful contrast can be drawn between the way Steven Gerrard dresses, which is, uh, you know, button up shirt with a tie underneath a kind of merino wool sweater with black slacks and black shoes. And then this overcoat that I'll talk about in a little bit more detail in just a second. So very simple. In fact, he was even wearing that in his, um, Aston Villa announcement photos. And he was even wearing this coat in the photos. He seems to absolutely love this coat in the way that perhaps Pep loves that sweater coat that he used to wear. Um, and still sometimes wears. Um, a useful contrast can be drawn between this sense of style and what we saw from Frank Lampard at the beginning of his Chelsea tenure, which was basically him casting a really wide net and throwing a lot of different spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. So early on in um, Frank Lampard's career, we saw him move through, you know, basically what Gerard is wearing now with a button up and a tie with a sweater over top of it and a coat, a sport coat. We saw just a shirt and a tie and a coat. We saw an open collar shirt and a coat, which I thought was honestly probably his best look. I think it played into kind of the like sort of 007-ness of him and his look. Um, I thought showing a little bit of skin there at the neck was a really good look for him. But he uh, moved away from that pretty quickly, cycled through a couple of other different things, and eventually landed on the Frank Lampard that we got to know for all too short a time, which was the kind of tracksuit manager Frank Lampard of the the Chelsea puffer and the, you know, track bottoms and cleats. Um, and I think going through that many different changes was really difficult it, because of that. It was really difficult to kind of pin down what he was trying to do, the ethos he was trying to communicate and um, how he was trying to present himself. And so at different times, he looked like this kind of like bad boy, 007 character with the open college shirt. At other times, he looked like the kind of, you know, prep school teacher with a sweater. At other times, he looked like, 
you know, um, the five o'clock happy hour guy with a, you know, um, polo at the bar. It was just hard to kind of get a sense of what he was trying to do. And I think that actually mirrored in a way his playing style um, at Chelsea. He didn't really seem to have a good grasp of what he was trying to do there um, and seemed kind of out of his depth tactically. And I think if clothing has anything to say about it, Steven Gerrard's reign at Aston Villa bodes much more um, favorably than Frank Lampard's uh, at Chelsea. And the reason I'm making that comparison is because obviously they're both ex-star players for their respective clubs of a certain age um, who have been given these kinds of big opportunities for the first time. And I think what we see with Gerard is, you know, a very kind of limited but well-selected set of clothing items that um, honestly just work really well together. So this coat that I mentioned um, is kind of a long-ish, it's like long for a kind of um, jacket in the sense that it kind of goes down to mid-thigh, goes over his bum but it's short for an overcoat. So it doesn't go down to his knees, for instance, in the way, you know, like an overcoat you'd see at an inaugural address or something um, would. Uh, so it's kind of short in length, but it really kind of looks very sleek. It looks very trim. And it's also not an organic material. It seems to be synthetic. Um, and even more than that, I think perhaps most interestingly, it seems to be layered. So it seems to have a vest inside of it. If you look at some of these photos of him celebrating on the touchline um, with the coat kind of like billowing open, you can see that it um, has some kind of vest. Either he's layering it with some kind of vest or, or under layer, or it has this attached to it. And, I, and I'm inclined to think that it has it attached to it just based on the build, um, which I think is really fascinating. It kind of speaks to simultaneous sense of elegance and also a sense of utility. Um, and this synthetic material is sort of has a puffer element to it. I think there's probably a little bit of down um, stuffed in there somewhere. Um, and I just think it's a great look. I think he's really um, found what looks good on him and he's sticking with it. I think that um, he's put some thought into it, but it doesn't seem like he's put a lot of thought into it. And if that makes sense, which is really all you're looking for in a sense of style. Um, he's kind of, to me, he looks like, you know, the slightly begrudged um, Scandinavian detective of some kind of Scandinavian film noir um, who has these kind of like intense creases on his forehead and always looks like he's carrying some kind of great weight, but nevertheless always manages to get fits off. Um, and I think that's kind of what Gerard is doing. And I really like it. I think, in fact, what he's doing, because he has, <laughs> his look is just so similar to Frank Lampard in a lot of ways, in the sense that a lot of the time they look like they're carrying the world on their shoulders. Um, I think he has found a sense of style that really works with that um, in a way that Frank Lampard never did. Um, so I just wanted to mention that I'm really loving what Frank, I'm sorry, what Steven Jarrett is doing on the touchline in the same way that I'm loving what he's doing on the field with his team and long may it continue. You know, I think it's great. I think 
Gerard at Villa doing well at Villa is just what the Premier League needed. I think it's great to get these kinds of um, technicians from um, all over the world to come in and um, coach and kind of introduce different styles of play or refine different styles of play. So like Ranić or Tuchel or Guardiola or Klopp or Hasenpudel or all these people. But I think there's something to be said for the ethos of the kind of player turned manager who has a more maybe, and obviously a lot of those other people were players too, but not in the same way that Frank Lampard was a player, for instance, um, uh, or Steven Gerrard or Patrick Vieira um, were all players. Um, having that more kind of grounded, slightly more organic feeling sense of the game. Um, I think that's a nice kind of combination to counterbalance some of the more kind of brainiac um, managers that we have in the Premier League now. Okay. Um, I think that that is all for me. Uh, yeah, I will see you all on the flip side. I hope you all have a wonderful and successful fixture congestion Christmas period. And um, I will see you at some point when I see you. All right. Bye.